0: Walter's World, the heart-hitting program that brings the news behind the news, with no-holds-barred interviews that get to the core of the matter, as well as on-site reports of current events. Hosted by the Doyen of the Airways, Israel National Radio's senior broadcaster, Walter Bingham.
1: Hello and welcome. It's June 20th, 2023, the first day of the month of Tammuz. 5783 in the Hebrew calendar. Chodesh tov. I am your host Walter Bingham, with another edition of Walter’s World. I really regret that we've been absent for quite some time due to a sudden and unforeseen eye problem that I have that hopefully only temporarily prevents me from reading and writing. Today I'm giving it a try. In this program, you will hear why I recently spent eight days in the German state of Brandenburg with its capital city of Potsdam. There will be reference to D-Day in 1944, the Allied invasion of Europe. And I shall also talk with the Swedish ambassador about Turkey, a member of NATO, who are delaying their required signature of consent to approve Sweden's application to join NATO. Last but not least, I want to tell you about the visit of Baroness Katharina von Strobein the European Commissioners' Coordinator for Combating Antisemitism and Fostering Jewish Life. But I begin with this. Radical adversaries are usually searching for a crime to fit the target they want to destroy. The best example for that is the hounding of former US President Donald Trump who at this time is the leading contender for the Republican nomination for the 1924 presidential election. Biden's Department of Justice is set upon to prevent his success by having indicted him on charges that many lawyers contend are without legal foundation. This process is just beginning and I shall be reporting on it as it develops. But a similar show has been going on for more than 75 years, from before the establishment of our Jewish state. It is the modus operandi of the Muslim terrorists who have built up a public relations organization that is continually inventing fake accusations of so-called crimes committed by the Jewish state against Muslim institutions, such as undermining the foundations of their mosques, on the Temple Mount, with the intention of destroying it. Although by digging and building structures on our holy mountain, it is they who are desecrating Israel's most sacred site. Yet Israel is a country in the forefront of political tolerance. Not only are the religious institutions of all faith under government protection, and if necessary guarded by the police, but their right to exist in security and peace are enshrined in Israel's Declaration of Independence, the closest to a constitution, and I quote, The State of Israel will, among others, guarantee full freedom of conscience, worship, education and culture, will safeguard the sanctity and inviolability of shrines and holy places of all religions, and will dedicate itself to the principles of the charter of the united nations all this is contrary to the accusations leveled against us by most of the arabs in our midst whose aim is to kill all jews as proclaimed in many of their mosques that is no joke as president biden would say we hear daily from iran's leaders of their aim to obliterate the state of israel which is tantamount to killing us a large part of our jewish population may disagree with one or another of our government's policies but with respect to the threat from iran we could have no better prime minister than benjamin netanyahu but for whose diplomatic skills and determination the middle east might today look different baroness katharina von schnurbein the European Commission's coordinator for combating anti-Semitism and fostering Jewish life, has paid one of her rare visits to Israel. Addressing a meeting organized by the Israel Council for Foreign Relations under the auspices of the World Zionist Organization, she spoke of the changes in Europe's attitude to anti-Semitism. Here is an edited version of some of the points she made.
2: Almost seven years ago, when I was here, it was my first speech as the then relatively newly appointed coordinator on combating antisemitism. And by the way, since 2019, we added fostering Jewish life to this title as an expression of the two aspects that are in this mandate the fighting on the one side, but the support for the Jewish community on the other. And we had seen in Europe devastating terror attacks. It was a time marked by the refugee crisis on the one side and the threat of terrorism on the other. It was also an extraordinary challenging time for the European Union, a time when the future direction of the Union was uncertain. We had the tight UK vote vote, ...to leave the EU behind. Seven years later, I'm happy to be back to discuss with you... ...where we are now in the fight against anti-Semitism. What has changed and where are we going? One thing is sure, quite a lot has actually changed. Back then, too many, including also from this country... ...predicted a breaking apart of the European House. In fact, the contrary has happened... European countries have rallied around the European Union and stand together first during the COVID-19 pandemic and even more so since the start of the brutal Russian aggression against Ukraine, which is impacting Europe at its core. That doesn't mean that within the European Union, we do not have also some of the challenges with regards to nationalism and the my country first aspect. Anti-Semitism, is not separate from these topics. In 2016, I ended my speech with referring to a poster from an awareness-raising campaign at that time in Germany, which said, Jews and cyclists rule the world. Why cyclists? Today the answer would rather be, why only these two? Because when the COVID pandemic hit the world, conspiracy myths spiraled out of control And where conspiracy grows, anti-Semitism has already grown. Conspiracy myths need scapegoats, and these have traditionally been the Jews. I remember very well the first weeks of the lockdown. Around Pesach, I received phone calls from Jewish communities across Europe warning of the anti-Semitic toxic content that was exploding in the face of the pandemic. Now... Russia is trivializing and distorting the memory of the Holocaust as part of its propaganda, justifying its war of aggression. It targets the Ukrainian president for his Jewish identity. Far-left and far-right extremists supported by Russia spread online disinformation and anti-Semitic conspiracies to divide society and destroy trust in democracy. Anti-Semitism is reinventing itself once again, and it remains a weapon of othering for politicians and demagogues. The Jewish community will not be its only victim, but it is its first. Antisemitism is a lethal malaise for every open democratic society, and the Halle Synagogue attack was just one of these examples where a perpetrator was radicalized by the simple idea that Jews sent Muslims to Germany to replace white Germans. Halle, Pittsburgh, Poway have become names that have been added to the long list of right-wing anti-Semitic attacks in recent years, also in Central and Western Europe. On the continent where the Shoah happened and where antisemitism has become again virulent since the beginning of the 21st century, where authorities had ignored and underestimated the impact of antisemitism on the Jewish community and on democracy, determined action was urgently needed. So, the European Commission adopted in October 2021 its first ever EU strategy on combating antisemitism and fostering Jewish life. It puts forward almost 100 initiatives that we will implement by 2030, and so far about 70 of them have already been put in motion. These initiatives cut across all relevant policy areas, from addressing antisemitism online, developing methodologies of data collection of antisemitic incidents, to security, education, research, and of course, finding new ways of Holocaust remembrance. And all initiatives are geared towards one single goal, to ensure that Jews in Europe can go about their lives in line with their religious and cultural traditions and free from security concerns. A Europe free from anti-Semitism, that's the essence and ultimate goal. We are not naïve, but the ultimate goal must be always in front of our eyes. When I was appointed in December 2015, many people doubted the EU's determination to tackle this millennia-old hatred, which exists around the globe and even in places without Jews. The EU was the first public administration with a coordinated mandate to combat anti-Semitism as part of the domestic and fundamental rights policies. Others had already coordinators, but they were looking mainly at anti-Semitism outside their own country. We deliberately added this aspect of promoting the European way of life under which fostering Jewish life is part. If you read the strategy, the Hebrew way, from right to left, the first sentence that you encounter is Europe can only prosper if its Jewish communities prosper too. I think this shows you the change of awareness of how connected the rise of antisemitism is with a rise of deterioration of democracy and the belief in democracy.
1: Awareness is all very well, but unless European countries coordinate and strengthen their laws for offenders of any kind of antisemitism, verbal or physical, This ingrained evil will not change, but get worse. The founding of modern Sweden is attributed to June 6th in 1523, the day on which Gustav Eriksson Vasa was elected King of Sweden after he had led an uprising to break the union between Sweden, Denmark and Norway. It all started in 1916, when that day was celebrated as Swedish Flag Day, but in 1983 it was renamed Swedish National Day. However, unlike in other countries, National Day was only in 2005 declared an official public holiday. Now Swedish delegation throughout the world celebrated, and as usual, on the 6th of June this year, Sweden's ambassador to Israel, His Excellency Mr. Erik Ullenhaag, held a reception at his official private residence. Among the guests were ambassadors, military attaches and dignitaries from many countries. Perhaps the most important item of Swedish foreign policy today is their application to join NATO. To allow Swedish application for membership of NATO... All 30 NATO countries must ratify the application. 31, including now Finland, have done so. But President Erdogan of Turkey is using it as a carrot and in return requesting extradition of Turkish dissidents to face trial in Turkey. Also to change their definition of terrorism to allow arms exports to Turkey. Turkey is a signatory to the Convention of Human Rights and there are also questions about their adherence, Their extradition request is not based on the rule of law, but on political considerations. They asked Sweden for a journalist who allegedly insulted President Erdogan. And now Turkey's latest objection concerns this unfortunate diplomatic incident outside the Turkish embassy in Stockholm, where the Swedish politician Rasmus Paludan publicly and foolishly earned a copy of the Quran and that, of course, has complicated matters further. Turkey's requests holds up the Swedish applications, which has been labelled by some as blackmail. This is what the German ambassador, His Excellency Mr. Stefan Seibert, told me recently about that subject.
3: For Sweden, after many, many years of staying out of NATO... To want to be members of NATO and to push towards NATO membership is a tremendous step. And it is a tremendous strengthening of NATO. It is the outcome of, of course, the Russian war of aggression against Ukraine, without which this perhaps would not have happened. So if Mr. Putin thought that he would weaken NATO by violating every international rule in the sovereignty of Ukraine, what really he did was to strengthen NATO because we will have two more NATO members who will be very effective and very worthy NATO members.
1: How do you see the situation?
3: I'm the German ambassador to Israel, based in Tel Aviv. I cannot tell you where exactly things stand today between Sweden and Turkey. I really wish, and I think this is the wish of the entire German government and of everyone in NATO, that this can be solved so they can become members of NATO as quickly as possible, they will be very, very valuable members. With respect to Turkey, it's not a secret that the German government has for many years been talking about human rights deficits in Turkey. This is something that we have often taken up with the Turkish government. These are controversies we had with them. So I really hope this
1: can be solved. Perhaps the most important item of Swedish foreign policy today Is there application to join NATO? To get an up-to-date view of the situation, I spoke this week with the Swedish ambassador, His Excellency Mr. Erik Ullenhaag. And I asked him first about the prognosis of Sweden's application to join NATO now that President Erdogan of Turkey has been re-elected for another term of five years.
4: Sweden applied to NATO after Russia's brutal invasion to Ukraine. And that's actually quite historical. Sweden hasn't been to war for 200 years. If you would have asked me a couple of years back if the Swedish people would support the application to the NATO, I would have said no. But the brutal war from Russia changed the situation in Sweden. So we applied a little bit more than a year ago. We feel strong support from almost all NATO members for Sweden entering the European Union. And as you rightly pointed out, we are still waiting for a confirmation from Turkey and also from Hungary. As you rightly pointed out, President Erdogan was re-elected again. And the reading I have from Stockholm and our contacts with other NATO member countries is that we are quite positive that Sweden will be able to join NATO this summer. We have delivered on uh, our agreement with Turkey and Finland. We have changed some legislations when it comes to the fight against terrorism. Uh, We have also delivered on the asks that the Turkey has. So now we are waiting for Ankara. I'm optimistic, and I think it would be good for Sweden. It would be good for the security in Europe, and it it would be good for NATO if also Sweden came in after Finland. But it is a historical step for us, and it's amazing to see that we have a strong support for the moment in the Swedish public for entering NATO.
1: So has the Swedish government entered into negotiations now with Turkey about their demands to expel the members of the Kurdish Workers' Party, the PKK, who's been given refuge in Sweden? And what are the latest conditions demanded by Turkey?
4: We had, when we were accepted as an invitee, we had a negotiation between Finland, Sweden and Turkey last spring. That's a memorandum that we are following. So we have delivered on the promises we have made Turkey. We have strengthened the legislation against terrorism and being a member of a terrorist organization. And, of course, if you find somebody that is a terrorist in Sweden, he or she will be convicted. So from our perspective, we have delivered on the promises. We have given Turkey, and for the moment, we are not into negotiations with Turkey, but we are waiting for their parliament to say yes to our entrance. They have said yes to getting us invitee status. So both Finland and Sweden at the same time got the invitee status. So it's a two-step process where... First, we are inviting Sweden and Finland for joining and now almost all the member states of NATO has also confirmed that they want to have Sweden inside NATO and the only thing we wait for is the confirmation by the Turkish Parliament. And for the moment we are optimistic, we feel also strong support from other NATO member states including the United States and the NATO Secretary-General. So hopefully uh, we will soon be able
1: to join. Given the conditions with Erdogan, to what extent can the rest of NATO exert pressure on Erdogan having regard to maintaining their own interests in the region?
4: Of course, Turkey is an important member of NATO, but in all clubs like this, be it European Union, be it NATO, when almost all other countries are saying that we want to see Sweden inside NATO, we think it's good for our security, that in itself create also, I would say, pressure towards Turkey to also accept us. But of course, in bilateral relations, the most important thing is that we actually have uh, delivered on the promises that we made in the agreement between Sweden, Finland and Turkey, or a memorandum from last year.
1: You already said that Sweden's application to join was the result of Russia's aggression on Ukraine. What exactly have you to fear
4: you couldn't overestimate what happened in february last year. Russia attacked a neighbor basically saying that we want your country. And when they're not giving away the country, they are going in with weapon and panzer wagon. We see every day the terrible suffering in Ukraine. Of course this is a violation of everything that international law stands for. For Sweden And for Europe, I think also it was a little bit of a wake-up call that some people that haven't seen what the Putin regime could do woke up. And that created a new debate in Sweden and Europe. I'm personally very proud of the European Union and Sweden that we actually have delivered support for Ukraine. You should remind yourself that for the first time since 1939, Sweden sent a weapon to a country at war and that was Ukraine. The last time we did it, we sent a weapon to Finland when they were attacked back then by the Soviet Union. So that also shows that rapidly the map changed in Europe. I think that Mr. Putin wanted to scare others. He was openly saying that he didn't want Finland and Sweden to join NATO. Uh, What happened was actually the opposite, that we felt that we are safer defending ourselves together with other democracies in Europe. And it's really a transformative change, both of strengthening European solidarity, but also strengthening what we used to be called the transatlantic pact, together with the Americans.
1: But Finland has a very long border with Russia. I can understand their fear. But I'm not sure that Putin has ever expressed any interest to have influence over Sweden.
4: The European security is common security, which means that, of course, we don't see an immediate threat to Sweden. But what we see is that if we accept that the Putin regime could attack another country and take over another country without supporting Ukrainians' fight for freedom and democracy, then we are on a super dangerous slippery slope next time? Could it be the Baltic states? And if it's states that are close to us and also part of the European Union we have an obligation to support them and that's also part of our security.
1: So you feel that Sweden has a moral obligation to join the club against Uh,
4: Not only moral, it's also interest-based in a way that for a small or a medium-sized country such as Sweden we are dependent on a working, functioning international law system. If you don't have an international law system working, if you don't respect the territorial sovereignty of other countries, of course, uh, then it's more dangerous for smaller and medium-sized countries. So it's also what kind of world we will create in five years and ten years if we accept this kind of aggression.
1: So let us hope that the conflict that you have with Turkey will be solved and that they will shine and... Uh, I know that Sweden will be a very valuable member of NATO. Now let me turn to the subject of asylum seekers. Sweden is renowned for its liberal policy towards political and even economic migrants. My own mother was plucked from the Nazi labor camps in northern Germany by the Swedish Red Cross, uh, taken to your country, nurtured to good health, and lived there as a citizen integrated into Swedish society. Last October, Prime Minister Ulf Christensen said in the Riksdag, the Swedish parliament, and I quote, Immigration to Sweden has been unsustainable, referring to the overcrowding, unemployment, benefit dependence, health problems, and crime. He talked about the lack of rules necessary to integrate people into the community when they come from countries with completely different laws, rules, and cultures. In recent years, the largest number of immigrants by country of origin was from Muslim countries, and according to reports that I read, many either find it difficult or are unwilling to adjust to the culture of their hosts. That has caused friction within the indigenous population to the extent that the asylum seekers have become a factor that is destabilizing the equilibrium of the country. Your government refers to, and I quote, a shadow society. So Sweden has been forced to change its immigration policy. That is also the case in some other European countries that have adopted a policy now of forced repatriation. How does Sweden handle these difficulties?
4: There's no secret that you have challenges in Sweden when it comes to immigration as the Prime Minister said. Today in Sweden 20% of the Swedish population is foreign-born and we are truly a diverse society. If you take for example the city of Malmö, it's a city around 300,000 inhabitants have 180 different nationalities It's not only that many people are foreign-born, we have people from all around the globe. That has created challenges. Some of them was mentioned by the prime minister, people that don't come into the labor market, people that don't learn Swedish, and mostly debated for the moment, also the challenges when it comes to crimes. And if you look at the political debate in Sweden now, I think this is the questions that, together with the war in Ukraine, is dominated in the Swedish debate. You should also note that out of this 20%, almost 2 million people that are foreign born in Sweden, the vast majority are quite successful in Swedish society. You should also remind yourself that every third doctor in Sweden is born in another country, every fourth dentist is born in another country, over 50% that are working in the service sector is born in another country. So the majority of the people has been successful. But quite substantial minority have had problems coming into the Swedish societies, and that has also created, especially in certain suburbs such as Stockholm, Malmö, Gothenburg, uh, challenges that The Prime Minister, also former Prime Minister, when uh, trying to address this, also goes back to, I would say, 2015 and the crisis with the Syrian refugees coming to Sweden. 4,000 people from Syria, we opened Sweden, but after that we have all made asylum laws and immigration laws to Sweden more in line with the other European countries. That's because we have the challenge with integrating people.
1: According to Reuters, even the former Prime Minister Magdalena Andersson, of whom you spoke, of the center-left social democrats said last August that the country's failure to integrate the immigrants has led to parallel societies and gang violence. And, of course, you know about the no-go area. So maybe the fault uh, lies with the administration. Maybe. It's always hard with
4: complex challenges in society. What you could say, if I should describe what's happened in Sweden, is that you have certain neighbourhood that has never really become successful individuals in these neighborhoods has been successful. Many people uh, have passed a suburb out of Stockholm, a suburb outside Malmö. They stay there for a couple of years and then they move on because they start a company or they get a job. It's two sides of the story. The problem is that in every refugee way, we have had some people that have not coming into societies. And then you have in these neighborhoods, uh, a lot of people that don't speak proper Swedish, that are not part of the labor market, and that creates also a dangerous situation for for criminal gangs that can recruit people from the social stations. This is a long-term challenge. Uh, The current government is strengthening quite a lot of the laws when it comes to how to fight crime. We're not going to solve this in one year, we're not going to solve this in five years. For the moment, the, the focus in Sweden, rightly so, is on the challenges we have, especially in certain neighborhoods.
1: Well, Sweden is now changing its immigration policy. I mean, in effect, that uh, you closing the stable door after the horse has bolted.
4: To be honest, I think most people of all political colours, all around the globe, don't want to see refugees, because if you see refugees, you have a terrible situation that people are fleeing. Sweden received people of the Holocaust, the Shoah, of course, we didn't want these people to be victims, maybe, of the greatest evil in history ever. But for the people, it was quite natural to open our doors for people coming from the Holocaust. So, of course, we would love to live in a world where you didn't have refugees. It's, of course, easy with immigration if you immigrate to a job or to study in a country. And that part of immigration is crucial, I think, for all countries. The terrible war in Syria, without that, refugees would have come and end up in, in Europe. Sweden is respecting and will respect the right to get asylum. We are still taking quota refugees, but we have a tighter refugee policy today than we have a couple of years back. And that's the challenges we also see within Swedish society. Quite broad public backing for that new policy, political backing for it. When it comes to migration policy, you see that several political parties have changed their policies last seven, eight years, and now the majority see the necessity, actually, of having more legislation in line with other European countries.
1: You mentioned that a few years ago you and the population would have been against joining NATO. Why?
4: Personally, I've been for uh, joining NATO for many years. I think the explanation of the Swedish opinion is more than 200 years of peace. We have, you know, NATO is a way of defending yourself, and I think people rightly so in a way have felt for generations we have been outside war, and why then join NATO? I think that's a main explanation for why we haven't joined NATO before. What happened now was the feeling of, if you're alone, you're not so strong. And I think what happened that was crucial in the beginning of the war was also that European Union, uh, US, many other countries started to support Ukraine, but also were quite clear you're not part of NATO, you're not part of the common defense. And that, I think, influenced a lot of Swedish people feeling like even if we're close to U.S., even if we're close to Europe, we don't really have the security guarantees as you have in NATO. So I think that's the explanation. We also have, according to my opinion, when it comes to neutrality, and we have a challenge sometimes with our own history, because, of course, neutrality has been a smart way of being outside of wars, but you can't really say it's the higher moral ground to be neutral. Like, for example, during the Second World War, it was efficient for Sweden, but it's something that we also need to reflect upon. To be neutral between Nazi Germany and the Allies, that's not something to be proud of. We have parts of of, of that history to be proud of: Raoul Wallenberg, Count Bernadotte, white buses saving Jewish people. But we were also the countries. We need to re- remind ourselves: it was Sweden and Switzerland that were the first countries asking to have a J in the passport of Jewish people. That's also part of a legacy. We let Nazi soldiers pass through Sweden to Norway. That's also part of a legacy.
1: And making uh, ball bearings for the Nazis?
4: Yeah, and the Nazis were also dependent on the Swedish iron and the Swedish uh, export. It's always hard to judge earlier time in history. We need to learn from history. My firm conviction is that every country in Europe has a lesson still to learn from, try to understand. It's almost impossible to understand the Holocaust, the Shoah, but try to understand it and try to make sure it doesn't happen again. And also make up with our own history. Because what happened after Second World War was that almost every country either wanted to forget or pointed at the resistance or whatever what we try to help or we said we didn't know what's happening so we all have a duty to try to understand it and I would say that the only country in Europe that sincerely have done the homework is actually Germany because Germany has for decades now been very open transparent and had the public debate. We are trying to do what we can in Sweden but we still have a homework to do there and other European countries as well.
1: I've just been in Germany talking to schools and my experience bears out what you just said about the Germans. Has Sweden had survivors talking to schools?
4: Yeah, some of them know or knew quite well. Of course we have the same challenge that the survivors are getting fewer and fewer. Fewer could tell what actually happened. That is dangerous because then you go into a point where it's not memories anymore, it's history. Of course, the Jewish population in Sweden is around 15, 20,000. So we don't have many, many holocaust survivors, but we have some heroes that have really traveled Sweden, visiting the schools and, and made a tremendous work for holocaust remembrance and, and fighting anti-Semitism. Most
1: Swedish young people speak English and I offer myself to go to Sweden if I'm invited to talk to schools. I would love to have you. I don't think I would recognize the country that was for years my second home. And I personally am most grateful to Sweden because of the efforts of the late Count Volker Bernadotte who saved so many people and who was tragically and wrongly assassinated here in Israel. Ambassador Ullenhaug, thank you so much for taking the time to speak at length and so openly and frankly to Israel National Radio.
4: It's useful for a diplomat to try to explain your own country and look from it outside. Thank you so much.
1: Last month, I spent eight days in the German state of Brandenburg as guests of their Ministry of Education and of the Minister-President of the State, Dr. Dietmar Wojtke. My purpose was to speak to schools around the state capital, Potsdam, and at various towns in the state about my life experiences living in Germany during the Nazi period and in the framework of the anti-Jewish Nazi laws until the outbreak of World War II. The venues were mainly high schools with reasonable knowledge of the period. The government made my stay extremely comfortable, acceding to every one of my requests. I was accompanied throughout by my driver and a senior ministry official, and the reception and the student interest at every school was beyond expectation, making my effort well worthwhile and, and the trip, a huge success. But that was not all. The proverbial cherry on the cake was the award of the Order of Merit, the Verdienstorden of the state of Brandenburg, their highest, presented to me by the Minister-President, Dr. Wojtke, at an impressive ceremony. It was an unexpected great honor, particularly after having related my degrading experiences in Germany at the hands of the Nazis. Thank you, Brandenburg. All that was only made possible because the Allies defeated Nazi Germany in World War Two. Last week, on June the 6th, was the 79th anniversary of D-Day, the invasion by the Allied armies of the Nazi-occupied continent of Europe, which marked the beginning of the end for Hitler, Yamaximoi, and his criminal gang. The troops landed on the beaches of Normandy. That's northwestern France. And during the heavy fighting for Normandy alone, the Allies suffered 210,000 casualties, with nearly 37,000 of the ground forces... Killed and a further sixteen thousand death among air forces. I had the privilege of taking part in these battles, and by the grace of God came through unscathed. It took another eleven months until the Nazi evil was finally defeated. Among my close comrades who lost their lives were several European Jews who, like me, fought to find their families. Their souls are now united with them. As for me, I am finally home in Jerusalem where I belong. That was A.B. Rottenberg. I am Walter Bingham, and with this, I celebrate my comeback to the airwaves of Israel National Radio, hoping that my eyesight will improve so that I can continue to bring you the news, views, and interviews from Israel and the rest of the Jewish world. So until the next time, I wish all my listeners a safe and happy week, and please. Don't forget that your elderly neighbours may have disabilities and that your visit will make their day. Goodbye.
0: The best of Israeli music, only on junior
2: 88FM.
5: Throw I'm i 88 FM. J-Air
0: is committed to diversity and inclusiveness for the Jewish and broader community. J-air.com.au Hi, this is Mark Kopelov with a reminder that you can support J-Air by joining as a member at j-air.com.au. Your membership fee of $54 a year will help J-Air maintain its commitment of bringing your community to you. Hi, this is Manasha Kaltman reminding you to tune into to our program